Well, there are some things that do not mix. Oil and water, vinegar and milk, glass houses and stones, orange juice and toothpaste, British people and emotions, <laughs> camping and warm weather, children and lions. All these are very trivial, and yet that is also true of people. The history of humanity has been marked by division between groups of people. We may think of Nazi Germany, and signs in shop windows saying, Jews are not welcome. You may think of slaves in America, African slaves considered as second-class citizens. The passing of Nelson Mandela, we may think of the apartheid. Now, we may remember these things as just dark spots in our history, and yet the reality is such divisions are everywhere today. You may think of Syria with Shia and Sunni Muslims fighting each other. You may think of Christians being persecuted in Pakistan. You may think of a city in this country where there was a sign put up, this is a Muslim area. You see division everywhere today. I was reminded of this just a few months ago. I went to watch a football match in the uh, City Arms pub and there was nowhere to sit. Uh, we were a bit late. So we decided to go into... I watched, I watched the game in uh, the Pizza Roma, if you know it. Out the back there, there's a sitting area. And we sat down and there was, the, the place was filled with Middle Eastern um, young men. And they were smoking their long pipes, speaking Arabic. And I felt totally out of place. And it was amazing that so near, on the same street, you had two entirely separate cultures going on. And there's no conflict, but completely separate. And so although there's lots of speech about peace and cohesion and unity, what we see, our experience in this world, is one of separation and division and often conflict. Some things uh, do not mix. Now that's true today, and it's true at the time of the Bible. In the first century, the greatest division of all was that of Jew and Gentile. Uh, to the Jews, the Gentiles were outsiders. They were dogs, unclean, dirty. Although they were chosen for the sake of the Gentiles, the Jews began to see this privilege as a sign of superiority. And so they looked down on them. Well, Luke and Acts has been outlining God's plans to make disciples of the nations, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to bring all people united under Christ. And last week we saw the conversion of Saul. And Saul was commissioned then as the missionary to the Gentiles. The gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. But there's still a question that we're left with. And it's this, what? will it mean to belong to God's people? As the Jews take the gospel to the Gentiles, what are they asking them to do? Are they asking them simply to put their faith in Jesus? Or is it also to adopt Jewish customs and culture? What is the gospel? Is it simply faith in Christ? Or is it faith in Christ plus becoming a Jew? Now that's probably not a question you've been thinking about recently. 
I take it we're not thinking, do our friends need to become Jewish? And yet, behind that question is an essential one for us to think about this evening. And it's this. Who is the Gospel for? What is the Gospel? And how am I supposed to relate to those who accept it? Especially those who are different. Those questions are key. And the answer Luke gives us in Acts 10 is crystal clear. This is what he says. He says, God accepts people from every nation simply through faith in Jesus. See, Acts 10 describes this cataclysmic change. God is destroying this ancient barrier like a bulldozer destroying an ancient wall. He is crushing this barrier. God accepts people in every nation simply through faith in Jesus. And so my prayer for us this evening is that we'll see again the gospel is for everyone. And so we're not to show favoritism. We'll see the gospel is needed by everyone. We must tell people. And wonderfully, the gospel is for us. It's a great encouragement for us Christians this evening. So four scenes in this narrative. Um, and we'll look at them in turn. This works. Okay, so, scene one, God's prophet Peter. So, Saul has gone to Tarsus, and Luke now focuses our attention on Peter. After Saul's departure, there's a time of peace. And so Peter travels around the country, um, seeing different Christians and encouraging them. And he goes to the Lord's people in Lydda. Lydda is a town northwest of Jerusalem, about 23 miles, on the road to the coastal town of Joppa. And in Lydda he finds this man called Aeneas. Uh, he's paralysed. He's bedridden. For eight years he's been lying down. You can imagine there must have been some kind of terrible accident. And it's a pretty tragic situation. What does Peter do? Well, he goes to him and he speaks to him. Just look at verse 34. Um, so he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Now that is a remarkable thing to say, isn't it, to someone who's paralysed. Just imagine going into some disabled home, just a paralytic on a wheelchair and saying, get up. Amazing thing to say, it's outrageous. And yet Peter says it, and what happens is that it happens. Peter's words have power, and Nias obeys him, and he gets up. Peter remains, look at verse 35. We're told all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. There's a huge impact. I mean, these locals would have known him, we presume. They'd have known him as Aeneas the paralytic, <coughs> the guy we feel sorry for, His life's been turned upside down. And then, after his encounter with Peter, they see him again, alive. Not alive, awake. Huh. Able to walk. <laughs> and and they, uh, they know Peter's message. And they believe Peter's message. Peter has power. There's a huge impact. It's not necessarily that every single person in Lydda became a Christian, but a large number of people followed Christ. In Lydda and in nearby Sharon, the message spread. And then we're taken to Joppa, further on, on the coast. And in Joppa there's this lady named Tabitha. She's devoted to good works, helping the poor and the widows, making clothes. She works at a local charity shop, the homeless shelter, the job centre. 
She's a do-gooder, and yet, tragically, she becomes ill, and she dies. There's no great medical care, no NHS, no help. She contracts some disease, and pretty quickly, she dies. It's a terrible loss. The Christians mourn in Joppa, but they hear of Peter's whereabouts. They know of his power, the power that God is exercising through him, and so they call him. He arrives to a room filled with wailing, mourning, and shock. He sends her friends out of the room. He gets down on his knees, and he prays. He knows that it is God who has the power to bring life to the dead. So he turns towards Tabitha, and verse 14, he says, Tabitha, get up. Again, all he does is speaks. And again, she obeys. Because to God, death is like sleep. Just as I might raise my child by, um, by speaking to them, rouse them from sleep. So to God, death is like sleep. And he just speaks. And she gets up. She uh, is reunited with her friends. And no wonder, again, word spreads. And many people believe in Jesus. So we have here two remarkable incidents, two remarkable miracles. We might think, well, isn't Peter amazing? He can do these things. Isn't that amazing? And yet Luke wants to teach us, I think, that as Peter is performing these miracles, it is Jesus who is at work. Jesus Christ heals you, Peter says. The two miracles you may have thought already are in fact very similar to miracles that Jesus himself performed. The paralytic, Jairus' daughter. And it's as if Luke is saying, look, this is the man through whom God is at work. He is God's prophet. He, has the one, he is the one who has God's stamp of authority and approval. The Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, by his spirit, is working through Peter. He's God's man. He's God's prophet. He is the one, therefore, who we're to listen to. And in the context of chapter 10, when it's Peter who's going to make these amazing statements about the Gentiles, it's important we see he is God's man. He has authority. Peter, God's prophet Peter. That's scene one. Well, scene two, an angel appears to Cornelius. So Luke then takes us to Caesarea, to a man called Cornelius. He's a centurion in the Italian regiment. Centurions were commanders of a hundred men. Six of these centuries formed a regiment. And that tells us that Cornelius is a pretty significant man. He's important. He's got power. He's your modern-day politician, businessman, soldier, all in one. And he's also a religious man. He's a devout worshipper of Yahweh. He and his family and some of his soldiers. And he's a God-fearer. Now that means he's a non-Jewish worshipper of God. He's, he's not a proselyte. He hasn't been circumcised. Which means that, despite the fact that he's devout, someone who prays devotedly, who gives generously, he's still an outsider. To a Jew, he's an outsider. You wouldn't have him in your home. You wouldn't trust this guy. So one day, three o'clock, time of prayer, he has a vision. An angel appears to him and says, verse 4, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. So God has recognised Cornelius. He's remembered what he's done. He wants him. And he gives Cornelius instructions to send some men to Joppa to get some in Peter. 
So after the vision, that's what he does. He obeys. He sends two servants and a soldier, and they go to get Peter. Now, the angel could have explained the good news of Jesus to him, but it's key that Peter and the church hear what he has to say. And while this is happening, Peter is still in Joppa. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. <coughs> now, being a tanner might sound like quite a fun occupation to us, browning by the Mediterranean Ocean on the beach. That's what it means. Now, a tanner is someone who makes uh, leather out of animal skin. And that means that Simon the Tanner, according to the Old Testament ceremonial law, is unclean. He's spiritually unclean. And Peter's with him. And that could just be a hint that Luke is saying that Peter is perhaps open to change here. That's scene two. An angel appears to Cornelius. Well, scene three, Peter's life-changing vision. The three men complete their journey a day later. And as they approach, Peter goes up to the roof to pray. In those days, as I'm sure you know, roofs were flat, often stairs by the side, so a fairly obvious place to go and pray to get some peace and quiet. And when he's praying, he falls into a trance. He sees a vision. Look at verse 11. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. So in this vision, Peter sees a sheet containing all kinds of animals that come before him. It's a potential feast, I suppose any farmer's dream. He sees four-footed animals, maybe a camel, a badger, a rabbit, a pig. He sees reptiles, maybe a lizard, a snake, a turtle, a tortoise. He sees birds, maybe a vulture, a raven, an owl, a heron. All these animals ready to be eaten. It's a strange vision. And for Peter, it's a disturbing vision. Because for him, being told to kill and eat is a scandal. He knows these are unclean animals. He's read Leviticus 11. This is madness. He's a Jew. God has told Jews not to eat this food. What's going on? He spent his lifetime being clean. He's not going to change now. And so he says, verse 14, he says, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. What do you mean? I'm not going to eat this. How can you say this? And then comes this shocking statement in verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. See, Peter is wrong. The animals are clean. God has said so. The animals then disappear. The same vision happens two more times. And Peter is left wondering about this. You can imagine him musing. What is going on? I mean, could it be true, he wonders, could it be true that God has declared all foods clean? And, and in declaring all foods clean, could it be that God is declaring all Gentiles clean? Could it be that the people of God are no longer an ethnic nation, but a, a multicultural global community? Peter wonders. And while he's wondering, Cornelius' men arrive. It's pretty good timing. Spirit of God tells Peter they're downstairs. He goes with them, and he's told to go with, go with them back to Cornelius. So he goes down, he talks to them, he finds out 
why they come, he understands from them that they've been sent by Cornelius, and that he is to go back and to bring them God's message, the message that he's just beginning to get hold of himself. So he invites them to stay for a night. That's scene three, Peter's life-changing vision. Well, scene four, a new message for the Gentiles. So the next day, Peter goes with them, and he takes up believers. The journey lasts about a day, so Peter has time to think about what's happened, time to muse, time to collect his thoughts, time to arrange his speech. And when he arrives, Cornelius falls down at his feet in reverence. This is the great Peter, this is the one sent by God. He falls down, but Peter dismisses this. And he says to him, verse 26, stand up, I am only a man myself. See, Peter knows that he is an equal, not a superior. So Peter then goes inside. Cornelius has invited lots of friends. And Peter says to all of them, verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? It's not the most flattering of introductions, is it? He says, previously, friends, I thought you were dirty. I would never have come near you. But now I realise that's not the case. You're clean, it's okay, I'm happy to be with you. And despite this, no offence seems to be taken. But what it shows is that Peter has clearly understood the meaning of the vision. He's had time to think. He's not to call anyone impure, that God is making. So what is true of the food is true of the Gentile. Well, Cornelius tells Peter about the angel's visit to him, and he explains, verse 33, Now I, I sent for you immediately, it was good of you to come, now we are all here, in the presence of God, to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. See, he sees Peter as God's authoritative apostle. He's come to bring God's message, so the platform is ready. The microphones are there, the notepads are out. They're ready to listen. This is the moment. There's a silence, and Peter speaks, verse 34. And he says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what's happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, Peter explains that he has understood something now that he's never grasped before. God does not show favoritism. 
but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That's what he understands. And it's not that God once showed favoritism and now doesn't, that he's sort of kept up with the times at last. Now that's not what's going on. The Jews have misunderstood God's dealing with them all along. That is, God set his affection on Israel. So, for the very sake of the Gentiles, they were to be a channel so that people would see the greatness of God. So God has no favourites. He accepts people from every race. And it's not to say either that all people will be saved. It's to say that salvation is available to all, without exception. It's to say that anyone who fears God and obeys him is acceptable to God. Anyone who obeys the call to trust the promises of Jesus is acceptable to God. That is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So there is no racial barrier to salvation. God does not show favoritism. God accepts people from every nation simply through faith in Jesus. And Peter then speaks of what has happened. He speaks of Jesus' life. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, establishing his kingdom against the devil. He speaks of his death and resurrection. He died on a cross, defeating uh, sin, paying the price, bringing us peace with God. God raised him from the dead, showing his victory over death. Those who knew Jesus saw him alive. He was raised bodily. He was physically alive. He ate and drank with people. And he rose from the dead with a message and with messengers. The apostles were to preach that Jesus is the risen judge of all people. He's the only one who can save everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So God's salvation is from the Jews, but it is for the Gentiles. It is for all people. And while Peter's explaining this, there's a dramatic moment because something remarkable happens. The Gentiles clearly do believe, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. It's a dramatic and visible event, just as it was at Pentecost, and for the Samaritans. The Jews are astonished. God is making things clear to them. The Holy Spirit is for the Gentiles too. They speak in tongues and praise God. So Peter suggests baptism. He sees that God has shown his stamp of approval, and so he sees that he must too. The Gentiles are included in God's people. So he stays with them a few days and he eats with them. We don't know what he ate, but perhaps we can imagine him eating all kinds of previously forbidden foods with joy. That's seen for a new message for the Gentiles. And so what we're seeing is that what is being exported is not Jewish culture. It is the Gospel of Jesus. The Gentiles do not need circumcision. They do not need the food laws. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. God has broken down this strong ghost of all barriers. God accepts people from every nation simply through faith in Jesus. And so it's worth thinking, well, what does this mean for us today? What difference should it make for us who believe? Well, three things to say, three things to see. We need to see that the gospel is for all people. We need to see that the gospel is needed by all people. And we need to see that the gospel is for us. So firstly, the gospel is for all people. God accepts people from every nation. I'm currently 
studying on a part-time Bible teaching course. And there are students from all over the world on the course. And last year there was a, a guy called Determine from Rwanda. And Determine wasn't brought up in a Christian home. He didn't really meet Christians until he went to university. And during that time, the country was deeply marred by the chaotic civil war. Um, hundreds of thousands of people killed. Great division between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And at the time of the university, all the, the unions, um, all the societies, were divided upon these tribal lines. So you had Tutsi societies and sorry, Hutu societies yeah, and Tutsi societies. And that was the case for every society except one. And that was the Christian Union. The time I realised that it was the Christian Union alone where the tribes mixed. And he couldn't believe it. The only place where the tribes mixed. And that was because he came to see their allegiance to Jesus Christ trumped everything else. It was the gospel that had the power to break down those barriers, to unite enemies, to bring friendship between the tribes. And that was what made this man determine come to faith in Jesus. The gospel's for all people. It's not Western. It's not white. It's not middle class. The typical Anglican today is an African. And it's been said that if he is, at some point in the future, your typical Christian will be Asian. The gospel is for all people. And so that must affect our experience of church and the way we relate to other people. It's so easy, isn't it, to gravitate towards those who are like us, uh, who we find easier to get on with, perhaps those who share our humour, our interests, our culture. That's our experience, isn't it? It's much harder to relate to those from different countries, harder to talk to. And yet as Christians, we must not show favouritism. To accept, therefore, means not simply to tolerate, to put up with. It means to love, to welcome, to befriend. As a church, if we are to represent Jesus rightly to the world, we must not show favouritism. It's a challenge to think about who we chat to at church, who are friends, and to think about our hospitality, who comes into our homes, to think about our friendship groups outside of church, at work, at university, at school gate. Think about our prayers, who are we praying for? Our families, the nations, neighbours from different countries. We were challenged in the autumn in our World Focus Sunday to think of one friend from a different country who we could be praying for. I wonder how that's going. The Gospel's for all people. And it may well be that actually people from different cultures are much more open to the Gospel than people from here, people who've not been brought up with this flood of secular materialism. It's great at Morning Road that we have iConnect, and we're going to be praying for that um, shortly. But let's not leave it to those people to be the ones who are welcoming internationals. Let's all be involved in that work. We mustn't show favoritism. The Gospel is for all people. Secondly, the Gospel is needed by people. Again, it's worth saying that the passage is not teaching that because the Gospel is available to all, all are saved. It's not teaching that being devout is enough. No, God accepts people from every nation, not every religion. Cornelius needed to repent and believe. 
He needed to come to Christ to know the peace of God. And it's a sobering truth, but there is a judgment to come. Only through being united to Jesus in his death and resurrection can we be safe from the coming judgments. That's why the gospel is needed by all people. Because only through Jesus can we be safe. Not a popular message, is it? Not one that's going to make us any friends. But we must remember that every individual we encounter outside of Christ is lost. The gospel is needed by all people, so let's offer it to all people. And finally, the gospel is for us. I take it most of us today are Gentiles. And therefore, what is said of us is this. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The gospel is open to us. And in the gospel we can be cleansed from our sin. Sin is often attractive, alluring, tempting, that sexual encounter, the release of anger, that bitter thought. And yet the sobering reality is that sin just leaves us empty <coughs> and guilty and ashamed to an ever more increasing experience of slavery and ultimately dirty in the sight of the Holy God. And yet the gospel, the good news, is for sinners that we, by the blood of Christ, can be pure and clean. It's for everyone who believes in the promises. And so Paul will say to the church in Corinth, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. The gospel is for us. So let's keep on trusting. Well, some things don't mix. It's true of Jew and Gentile. And yet this teaches us that God has broken down these barriers. God accepts people from every nation simply through faith in Jesus. So let's be reminded the gospel is for all people. And let's not show favoritism. The gospel is needed by all people. So let's tell others. And wonderfully the gospel is for us. So let's keep on trusting.